When we practice meditation, we have to be prepared to constantly remind ourselves what the purpose of meditation is, why we're doing it, what the aim of it is, so that we develop the correct understanding and the right attitude. If in doubt, we can always go straight back to the Lord Buddha himself. Why did the Lord Buddha go out of the palace to practice in the forest? What was his aim? What did he achieve? He said, what does a Buddha realize? So the enlightenment of a Buddha the Buddha realizes Dhamma. Dhamma is the truth, the truth of the way things are. The Buddha reaches enlightenment, the end of suffering, through realizing the truth of the way things are. Through his own efforts, Whether a Buddha arises in the world or not, the Dhamma is still the Dhamma. Truth is truth. It is as it is. It's tatata. Buddha's function is to penetrate the Dhamma, the Arya Satcha Dhamma, the noble truth, the four noble truths. Just as previous Buddhas have, just as future Buddhas will. Even a Buddha has to respect the Dhamma. People would ask sometimes the Buddha, what do you respect? The Buddha was a supremely enlightened being. All the members of the Sangha would show respect to the Buddha, bow to the Buddha. People would revere him, make offerings to him. So some people would doubt, say, what does the Buddha revere or respect? And the Buddha respects the Dhamma. The Dhamma, it's through the Dhamma that the Buddha is enlightened by realizing truth, penetrating the Four Noble Truths. Then out of compassion, he taught them to others and they become the means by which others can realize truth and end their suffering. They say in a previous life the Buddha was a king. 
one life and he's traveling along a road to the edge of his kingdom with his entourage. It's a very narrow road in those days. The roads were narrow. No way to pass anybody coming in the opposite direction. And he met another king, also with his entourage. They're both very powerful kings, many servants and soldiers and possessions. So there was a little bit of a standoff. One king meets another king who should give way. They're both kings, they're both powerful in worldly sense. But being reasonable kings, they decided to discuss it rather than fight over it. Who should give way to the other? They asked each other about their kingdoms, similar size, similar population, similar wealth, resources, cities, capital cities, similar size, army, similar size, everything very much equal, the same couldn't find any reason that one should give way to the other. Then they discussed their spiritual practice. And the Bodhisattva said he keeps eight precepts, even as a king, all the time. The other didn't. So all agreed the one with eight precepts should go first. That's the Dhamma. You might say the higher Dhamma or the Dhamma, deeper Dhamma of keeping the eight precepts, indicating probably a more refined state of mind, more supportive for meditation. So the other king, with humility, still being a wise king, gave way to the first king who had the eight precepts out of respect for his Dhamma, the level of his Dhamma. Even the Buddha had to go through dukkha, suffering, stress, pain and so on to realize the Dhamma. Like all the great enlightened masters, Ajahn Chah and all the others, it's not something one can attain easily without effort. Ajahn Chah himself used to say to realize Dhamma, the Dhamma that he teaches, he had to really put his whole life at stake, really commit to the practice, dedicate himself to the practice. It wasn't easy. And even the Buddha had to go through hardship He was, when he was born, his father invited the astrologist to predict what the son, what was destined for this son that's been born. And most of them said, well, he may become an enlightened teacher, or he may become a world-conquering emperor. The size of his empire would stretch from one ocean to the other, say across the whole of India, northern India, to the south of India, to the north. 
would be more powerful than any emperor in history. And the king, obviously, his father obviously wanted that for his son, thought that was most suitable. So he spent his whole, the youth, Gautama's youth, spent the whole time trying to hide him from Dukkha, realizing that when one sees Dukkha, one might start to think of other things than just conquering the world and being an emperor. Might think of the spiritual life. So he did his utmost to prevent his son from experiencing Dukkha. Gave him every pleasure, food, music, girls, entertainments, distractions, the best education, the best clothes, the best of everything, and hid away every other form of dukkha. Wouldn't allow any sick people in the palace. As soon as someone was sick, they have to leave. Wouldn't allow any old people to walk around the palace. They have to stay away. No funerals, no mention of death. So completely artificial kind of happiness for the Buddha, sanitized, protected from dukkha. Just as anybody in the world aspires to, we all aspire to a life free of dukkha, free of pain, discomfort, free of anything that we don't want and don't like. But because he, the Buddha's father, Suddhodana, the king, he's able to achieve that quite well because of his position. Very successful for many years. But he couldn't suppress the inquisitive, inquiring mind of the Bodhisattva. He just had to keep questioning whether this was real happiness and the real meaning of life, the purpose of life, till he eventually sneaked out of the palace with Channa, his servant, horseman, to walk around the town and saw the normal sights of dukkha that human beings are involved with, old age, sickness, death, poverty, and so on, stimulating those reflections and that sadness, or oh, even life is bound up with dukkha. Will these things happen to me? And Chana said, yeah, of course, these happen to all human beings. So the Buddha could see even with the great wealth, power he already had and could achieve more, even achieving everything still can't overcome old age, sickness and death. So I could see quite clearly life is incomplete in that sense. It's bound up with dukkha. Giving him a sense of sadness and a sense of wanting to seek something outside of that, away from that, beyond that. So using his wisdom he reflected that just as there is night, there is day, hot, cold, hard, soft, There is dukkha, there must be the end of dukkha. There is uh, birth, old age, sickness and death. There must be that which is not 
birth, old age, sickness and death, not bound up with birth, old age, sickness and death. Just reasoning like that, he was determined to pursue that possibility, the potential for a human being to realize the end of dukkha, the deathless, which led him out of the palace, leaving all his possessions and wealth and attachments, family behind to go out into the forest, taking his horsemen with him, although he sent them back. They wouldn't go, they followed him, reached the river Anuma, cut his hair off as a symbol of his determination to lead the life of a renunciant. They say one of the great marks, the marks of a great man, of a bodhisattva, is that once the hair is cut, it never grows again. It becomes kind of stunted in its growth. So he always had a naturally shaven head. Off he went to the forest, but still had to go through great exertion learning the meditation techniques of the day, the jhanas, and then the ascetic practices, till he finally set aside all the, the standard meditation techniques and ascetic practices that they were teaching in those days, realizing they were still limited. Eventually came to his own realization on the night of his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, and what did the Buddha realize? He realized the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha, understanding Dukkha has its cause, Samudaya. Mental defilement, Kilesa. Craving, craving for pleasure, craving for existence itself, for being, becoming craving to get rid of all that is unpleasant. The kilesa and craving and the cause of suffering. This was his investigation using the skills of his meditation and wisdom to just contemplate more deeply in a way nobody else had done before. Nobody else had quite unraveled the real source of dukkha. A bit like a doctor who has to sort out the cause of somebody's illness. They look at the symptoms, but if they still can't get to the root cause, well, they have to do further tests. So nowadays you have an illness, you know, they check you once and then they send you off for more tests using different machinery, different techniques, procedures. They just keep testing and testing and looking until finally they get some information that they can use to assess you and then they decide what's wrong with you. And the Buddha was like that. He didn't give up. He was willing to pursue his own investigation using techniques of meditation and wisdom. Just keep pursuing, learning, looking, observing, contemplating. So he finally revealed the Four Noble Truths, 
you know, the cause of suffering, realize the end of suffering, nirodha, cessation, and then fully understood what the path that leads to the end of suffering was, marga. Call it Arya Marga, so it's noble path. This word noble Arya means far from defilement. So it's the path that takes you far away from defilement, from the mental defilements. Takes you in the opposite direction. So you could see underlying our suffering is the cause is the mind falling into greed, anger and delusion over and over again falling under the influence of greed, anger and delusion in their different forms, different formats. They come up in the mind, different mental states. Leading the mind into delusion, taking this body and mind, the five aggregates, these five groups of a human being, form, feeling, memory, thought formations, sense consciousness, as self grasping at them and leading on to all kinds of suffering, grasping at that which is inherently not self, as a self, taking it as a self. We are bound to be disappointed. If what is not really yours, you take as yours, you're bound to be disappointed. It'll change. It'll degenerate on you and you'll lose it. It'll change and it'll be gone. That's the nature of this body and this mind. You can see the defilements support that delusion through his investigations. So the path that the Buddha taught is about developing this quality of mind, developing the, the peace of mind, the stillness, the quietness that helps us to see more deeply suffering the dukkha, its cause, its end. And when we begin practice and our development of mindfulness and wisdom is not so mature yet, you can see how we always keep falling into suffering, states of suffering, stress, following our moods. You can see when there is dukkha, present and there's no not enough mindfulness and wisdom there's always a sense of self arises and literally you have that thought I am suffering I am unhappy I am this I am that I am in pain so the most obvious dukkha is pain of the body and then mental pain anguish, stress, anxiety and worry and so on. But when dukkha arises, if there's no mindfulness, it's always accompanied by a sense of self identifying with the physical and mental experience of that dukkha. Whereas when we train ourselves in developing mindfulness, sati and wisdom, panya, with having a new way of looking at dukkha, at this body and mind, and seeing dukkha as dukkha, taking the sense of self out of the experience and just noting dukkha and knowing it as dukkha, 
And this was the instruction the Buddha gave. He said, dukkha is something to be known as dukkha. You know, if you have some pain in your body, you know this is dukkha, the dukkha of a body. Through karma, we live in the world, and sometimes we get pain come back to us. Just the pain of having a body, we get aches and pains, feel hungry, feel tired, and so on. Sometimes it's more extreme. We have physical injury and cuts and bruises and so on, or more extreme injuries or illness. This is all the dukkha of a body. But we're learning to see, well, this is the nature of a body. It has pain, it is involved with pain, it is subject to pain. And when we grasp at that pain, then that sense of dukkha arises as a sense of I am in pain, I am experiencing some discomfort, too hot, too cold, too hard, too soft. Different kinds of uh, painful experience with the body. When there's no mindfulness, it's always me, my pain, it's like this. And that will lead on to more reactions in the mind, mental reactions. I don't like this. Complaining in the mind, despairing, depression, disappointment and so on. So we're learning to know dukkha as dukkha, the dukkha of the body and then the dukkha of the mind itself. Unpleasant mental states, emotional states. What we call negative emotions, the dukkha of the mind. Also learning to develop enough mindfulness and wisdom just to see dukkha as dukkha. Painful main mental states as painful mental states, just to know this is dukkha, but not to seek to squash the dukkha or reject the dukkha, which is the way the unenlightened mind works. We reject physical pain, mental pain, and try and run away from it, cover it over, distract ourselves, and so on. We react in a hundred ways to, to different experiences of dukkha with this sense of self, with a sense of me, I'm in pain, I've got to get rid of this. But it's all self. So it just actually creates more dukkha and lays the conditions, the foundations for more dukkha. Whereas the path of the Buddha taught, developing enough mindfulness and insight, wisdom, to be able to see dukkha as dukkha, just to know it as that much. Dukkha is to be known, realized as dukkha. You have a body, it does experience pain. It's not that you seek pain, want pain, it's just it's the nature of a body to experience pain. And there's no way out of that. You know, it's like when we're kids, we can't endure very much pain at all. So as soon as there's a little bit of pain, we cry, we fall over, scrape our knee and we cry, we run around crying for a long time until we finally we move on. Maybe our parents distract us or we just move on in ourselves, think about something else. But for a long time we just cry and cry. As you old, get older, you know, your 
strength of mind improves so you don't cry over every little bump but still the same process is there you might have more serious pain and that's enough to stimulate some real uh, despair or moaning and complaining or it turns out to be maybe more mental pain later as you get older the mental anguish of not getting what you want getting what you don't want losing what you want and so on They call this process of practicing the path, they call it a maturing process. The word in Thai they use is bom. It's the same word they use when we fire our bowls, our, the stainless steel bowls of a monk. Nowadays they're stainless steel. Start off in bright, shiny stainless steel and then you, you bake them <coughs> in a fire and they go dark to discolor them. It's the same word you use for baking your bowl, you're baking your parami, you're maturing your parami, bringing your mindfulness and wisdom, strengthening it to be able to see these Four Noble Truths and understand them, penetrate them in your experience and see the dukkha of life as dukkha without grasping at it and identifying with it as a self but just to know dukkha is dukkha that's all we need to do with it is just put it in its place and dukkha is dukkha physical dukkha, mental dukkha just to know it without moving on to a lot more complaining, reacting to it which just compounds it Once you establish this awareness, dukkha is dukkha, where it naturally leads the mind, the next step, the next question is, well, what can I do to remedy dukkha? Not to actually try and suppress the dukkha itself or squash it or get rid of it, but to actually lead, leads the mind to look more deeply, well, where is it really coming from? What is the source? And that leads us on to this investigation of kilesa and craving. We see that through our lack of training in the practice, our lack of mindfulness, our lack of understanding, we grasp at this body and mind as a self. We get deluded by it. We take ownership of our body and mind. We take ownership of all our mental states. So we grasp at them. We grasp at greed, we grasp at anger, we grasp at delusion. And this keeps conditioning or feeding more greed, more anger, more delusion, more suffering. And this is the, the cause of our suffering. The Buddha said, Craving and defilement is no river as long as the river of craving. As long as you grasp at mental states accompanied with greed, and then you'll keep meeting with dissatisfaction because greed in its nature is a state of where you feel discontent, lacking. You want something, you're seeking something. You're the object of your senses, uh, it's greed for sight, sound, taste, smell, touch or even more refined 
things just arising in mind consciousness, refined states of mind, even states of samadhi. Rupa jhanas, arupa jhanas, or the bliss of samadhi. All of this can be the basis for greed, grasping. If we don't see that, we never contemplate it, we never observe it at work, then we suffer with it. There's always the mind always dropping into dissatisfaction, discontent. Greed for pleasures, pleasures of this body, the senses that this body has. Greed for objects of desire, so pleasant things in this world. If one is constantly thinking of the pleasures one could have that one hasn't got, or trying to hold on the ones one has got. The mind is constantly stirred up, never still, never peaceful. If we never contemplate this, never see this, we can't see how how dukkha arises. We don't see these movements of the mind, the mind always moving away from its natural stillness into creating and scheming. When you come into a monastery, you're seeing this firsthand if you take the time to look because the lifestyle is, is fairly quiet, little stimulation, not so many things happening. You can see the way the mind is constantly planning and scheming and trying to get this and get that and want this, want that, never satisfied. And one way of dealing with this is to go looking for the opposite, well look for the contentment in the mind, look for the stillness, the quietness in the mind, using mindfulness, using wisdom. You notice when the mind does go quiet. Obviously when it's caught into greed we can see it stirred up. It may take some time to quieten it down, but then there will be times when it's quiet and you can become aware of that. The times when there's not much greed, the mind is content. Focus on that more and more. The stillness of the mind, focus on that more and more, especially when you're meditating. If you keep focusing on the the thoughts and the mental states based on greed, then of course you'll keep stirring discontent in the mind. There's nothing more powerful than say the, the desire for say, sexual desire thinking of a woman the mind becomes completely obsessed with all kinds of things the way they look, the way they talk different planning and scheming that the mind can have so don't think of that you know, turn, learn the, to turn the mind away from that to think of that which brings the mind to stillness, quietness just notice the very stillness between thoughts and moods. When that kind of thought pattern has finished, the mind goes quiet again. Sometimes stillness and quietness is so subtle that we have to learn how to appreciate it. In the beginning, the mind is so confused and stirred up, doesn't even know how to appreciate quietness, stillness. That's why we don't have much samadhi. One has to actually keep looking for peacefulness, for emptiness as well, the emptiness that comes with insight. You see, these are just conditions of mind 
without any real owner or self. You think of a certain object, well naturally the mind becomes stirred up and obsessed with it. You change the object, well that original obsession, the mind getting stirred up, changes. It quiets down if you think of the right object. If you think of impermanence when you're stirred up with, with some form of greed, think of the impermanence of that object that you're, you're obsessed with, how it's just a temporary thing that comes and goes. All the most pleasurable experiences in this life are still just temporary, impermanent. If you turn your mind just to contemplate impermanence, well, it quietens down if you're doing that sincerely in a genuine way. When it quietens down, you can notice mm, the mind is quiet. And you can extend the appreciation of those moments of quietness, stillness, reminding yourself, say, of the impermanence of whatever it was that was stirring the heart up. The same with anger. You know, notice the pauses between the thoughts of anger or the different moods of anger you might have. You're not angry all day long. If you have anger or irritation, just notice how it comes to its end. You know, sentences, verbalizations in the mind, you think of some angry, irritated thought, but then it comes to a stop. You can focus your mind more on that period where it stops and the mind goes quiet. And then you can see impermanence at work. You can see non-anger arising as a mental state. That maybe the feelings accompanying it subside. The mind feels more relaxed and the body feels more relaxed. If you keep doing that, even the doctors and scientists nowadays have to admit you keep establishing mindfulness and allowing negative emotions, negative thoughts to fade away. Well, it gives you good mental health and physical health as well. The whole chemical balance of the body changes. Why people fall into depression and why depression, you know, they call it a clinical, an illness. Because when you're negative, constantly over and over again having negative thoughts, well, the chemical changes, the hormones in the body gradually affect the body, the brain, the mind is affected by that. And it becomes a very deeply ingrained state of mind. Because if you do the opposite, that also affects your body and mind. You keep establishing mindfulness, contemplating the impermanence of thoughts, the mind starts to release itself from these negative emotions, returns to more peace. One appreciates more the peaceful mind. So physically and mentally one starts to feel better. Sometimes the Dhamma is so subtle that we have to really look for it and notice it and bring it up, teach ourselves to appreciate it. You know, if you never teach yourself, well, you might never find it. We have to teach ourselves how to direct the mind away from these negative emotions, greed, anger, delusion. And delusion is just built up by constantly falling into wrong ideas, wrong perceptions and wrong views about things, wrong thinking. 
taking everything as a self, grasping it as a self, and getting fooled by that. I am this way, I am that way. Judging ourselves, getting caught into always expecting things or wanting things, wanting to be a certain way. Even as a meditator or in a monastery, I want to be a good monk, I want to be a good meditator, good person, which are all correct, but it's the grasping at the ideal and not seeing the delusion of self that's forming around that. Then, of course, it's laying this foundation to feel disappointed if you notice any time where you're not good, where a defilement arises. You judge that, oh, I'm no good, and can't meditate, can't do this, can't do that, I'm bad. And we go backwards. You're training your mind to actually observe things as they are, mental states as mental states. First of all, you're seeing the harm of all these negative mental states, but you're also not judging yourself for them, but you see their mental states that arise according to their own set of conditions. If you start changing that set of conditions, re-educating this mind, well, it starts to experience things differently. You can see the mind is, in the end, it's, it's something that is empty of any fixed, it's not one way or the other way. It's not fixed, it's not permanent. It goes according to the way it's conditioned. Even the book, the path, Magga, developing, keeping the precepts, developing more refined morality, developing mindfulness and samadhi, developing insight, wisdom. This is conditioning the mind. Still there's no self involved in that. It's setting the mind in the right direction, but there's no self there. As the mind starts to settle down and experience more quiet, then you can appreciate this. Then you're seeing more things as more as Dhamma arising and passing away. Even a negative thought is just Dhamma. It's just Dhamma arising, passing away as its own cause and condition. The more and more one is bringing the mind to the sense where it can see greed, anger and delusion as just what they are, they're just dhammas. Arises and passes away according to its cause. And the dhamma that arises in their place, the wisdom, the mindfulness, the wisdom, the sila, the mindfulness, the samadhi, the wisdom, these are also dhammas. But the effect on the mind is totally different takes the mind away from its darkness, its negativity, its suffering, takes the mind to clarity, insight. That process takes time because we have so much uh, previous conditioning however much with all the willpower in the world you can't do it in one day one night maybe not even one vasa one year one has to be willing to work at it when we first come into the monastery we're all like rotten logs that they pull out of the water or maybe it's not a rotten log it's a log of 
in the old days when they stored timber to make houses and buildings, the way they'd store it, just leave it in water for many, many years. Partly because then people wouldn't see it and steal it. Also because you can just do that, you can store wood like that. And then when the time comes you pull it out of the water and let it dry and then you can cut it up once it's dry. But it takes a long time to dry obviously. We're all like that, logs of wood that have been pulled out of the water and we're starting to dry off. As long as it's still wet, you can't do anything with it. You can't build a fire with it, you can't make it into a house or anything because it's still too wet. You have to allow it to dry out and then you can work with it. Our minds are like that. So you pull your mind out of the lay life into the monastery, and suddenly you've got, you're living in a forest, you're developing the discipline of the Vinaya, developing mindfulness, insight, learning the Dhamma. It's not going to happen overnight that you be your mind dries out, takes some time. Even if you keep putting the right inputs, you're practicing mindfulness, you're contemplating the Dhamma, listening to the Dhamma. Because the wood is still wet, it's not yet ready to be worked. Doesn't mean to say one should stop and give up, just means one has to be patient, willing to take the time till that wood dries out till the mind dries out. All the thoughts that keep running around, the obsessive thoughts about women, about food and music, about different things we like to think about, places we've been, people we know, different kinds of knowledge about the world, all our likes and dislikes. It takes a while for us to establish enough mindfulness to see all that as Dhamma, rather than grasping it all as self. Well, little by little, if you practice, then you are like that. A kid who grows up no longer has to cry every time they fall over when scrape their knee. You gain more maturity, so the mind has more resistance to dukkha, doesn't just react to dukkha, but can just know, oh, this is dukkha. This is, this is what ennobles the mind by seeing dukkha as dukkha. It becomes an Arya Dhamma in the mind when you experience dukkha, physical dukkha or mental dukkha, just as dukkha, without grasping at it. And that naturally allows you to see the cause of dukkha, move to the next step, cause the dukkha has to be abandoned. All the moaning and groaning in this mind, gradually we have to let it subside and then keep bringing the mind to quietness stillness. Even when externally things may be very busy, doesn't mean to say the mind has to be busy with all that external busyness. And with insight one can still think, but one knows thought is just thought. One doesn't grasp at it as self. You know, thought is just a process of mind, it's a function of mind. So one can use thought to understand Dhamma more, or to practice compassion to help other people. One uses thought skillfully rather than just being like a slave to us, all our thoughts and being pushed around by the dukkha of our thoughts, identifying, grasping at them. One learns to use thought wisely, 
turn the mind to think of Dhamma, to teach itself or to help others. Memory, we use memory wisely, develop a wise attitude to memory. And little by little the mindfulness and wisdom develops inside and the appreciation of stillness and quietness grows. What they call emptiness, seeing the emptiness of form, this form, physical form, this mind and the world around us. Seeing things just as they are, the four elements, the four elements that make up this world earth, air, fire and water. Some formations, some sankhara formations have consciousness, like people and animals. Some don't. Buildings, mountains, there's no consciousness. But they're all just four elements in their different manifestations. Once you appreciate the path, then you can also appreciate you know, the qualities of being a human being, your good fortune of being born as a human being, you can train this mind to see Dhamma. You can train this mind to understand truth, deeper truths, and bring it to more peace. And that's the true meaning of human birth. You know, human beings are manusa, the beings with a higher mind or a developed mind. That's the quality that we develop through developing the path, cultivating the path. It sets us aside from animals. They don't have the chance to understand Dhamma or penetrate Dhamma. They're suffering, as we can see every day. They're out in the elements, in the weather, struggling to find food, being hunted and chased. There's a difference, a human being can rise above that if we rise above our kilesas, willing to work with them and develop mindfulness to abandon them. And this is what the Buddha did. The reason he's a Buddha is because he did it through his own efforts, supremely enlightened, self-enlightened, the fruits of many, many lifetimes of practice to get to that point. We're fortunate we, still, we have the Buddha's teachings available, the Dhamma is available. We don't even have to find the path for ourselves. We have to do the practice for ourselves, but we don't have to look for the path. It's right here for us, ready for us to follow. All that's left is for us to practice in make use of this human birth. So I'll leave you with these uh, reflections tonight.